Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. I'm here with Rachel Levin. We're the team that brings you Blazing Trails. Hello, Rachel. Hey, Michael. How are you doing? Doing great. I am super excited for this episode today. Rachel, tell me what we're going to be hearing. Well, today we're going to hear another great conversation from our Bold Force series. And for our listeners that don't know, Bold Force stands for Black Organization for Leadership and Development. And the goal of it is really to expand and empower the Salesforce Black community. And today there's a really great conversation that we're going to be hearing from DeRay McKesson. He's a civil rights activist and many people may recognize him as one of the early supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement. And he sat down with Lola Banjo, who's also the president of Bold Force at Salesforce and a senior managing director. And they talked about why he became an activist and what it really takes to bring about lasting change. Yeah, this episode is really inspiring and we are excited to bring you this conversation. So let's take a listen to activists DeRay McKesson and Lola Banjo. And welcome everyone to this very special event sponsored by our friends at KPMG. Thank you to the Salesforce Office of Equality and Bold Force for bringing this together. I am so honored to be here today with DeRay McKesson. Thank you so much, DeRay, for joining us today and helping us kick off Black History Month at Salesforce. It's an honor to be here. I'm excited for this conversation. I'm a big fan. I'm excited too. Okay, so DeRay, so for those that are tuning in today who are new to your work and also may have missed your keynote during our annual Racial Equality Summit, Representation Matters, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in activism and fighting for systemic change? So as an organizer, when I was a young person, then I went to college, I was a teacher, I taught sixth grade math, which was incredible. And then I was in Minneapolis in 2014 and I was leading a part of the school system and I saw on the news that a kid got killed in St. Louis. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go for the weekend and just stand in solidarity, be in solidarity with people because Mike Brown got killed. The second night I was in St. Louis was the first night that I got tear gas and that changed my life. Like that really was a defining moment for me. And from that moment on, I've been working on issues of police violence. So I was one of the original protesters in Ferguson, have been in almost all the cities in protest and have worked to try and figure out what we do from a solution standpoint. And that's the work I do now. Amazing. Thank you so much for all your work. So since you last joined us, um, so much has happened in the world. I mean, we've heard all about it. Not only are we facing a global pandemic that we know is disproportionately affecting um, our community, we also saw brutality and racial injustice rise to the forefront this summer uh, with the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey. As someone who's been at those lines with the work that you're doing and for nearly a decade now, what were your thoughts when you were seeing that? So it was one of those things that I never thought, you know, living through the first set of protests and being a part of it, I was like, wow, this is unreal. I never thought I'd live through two of them so soon, right? Like, I'm like, who we, I feel like this is back where we were. So I think that, you know, in some ways, seeing is believing. I think that people saw it and there were people who were on the fence. There were people who didn't stand with us in 2014 and this was their moment. They were like, if it ever happens again, I got you. So I think that more people understood the problem. And I think that's real. When we look at this, what we see is that the police actually killed more people in 2020 than almost every year of data we have. 2020 was second only to 2018. The number of people killed did not go down despite the protests, COVID, quarantine, lockdown, all that stuff. The number of people that were killed by the police actually went up, which is sort of wild. So when I step back, I'm like, 
we got a lot of work to do. That you look at all the media coverage, the magazine, the conversations, like people really do think that that led to some structural change and like it necessarily didn't. Now that doesn't mean that that all the energy was not important, but it does mean that we actually have to look and make sure that we are focusing on like what the problem is. And the other thing that we know now that we didn't know five years ago, six years ago, is that the police actually kill more people in suburban communities and almost all other communities combined. It's not cities. People think it's cities. Cities is actually the only place that it's getting better. And rural communities and suburban communities is getting worse. So when I think about this last year, it was a reminder that the numbers should guide us about how we think about change, that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that we can work on, and that we'll only win together. Yeah, that data is very startling. So do you think the sentiment is changing overall? Like, do you think real change is close? I think the sentiment is changing. There are a lot of people in the mass incarceration space, prisons, jails. There were not a lot of people in the police space. And there are now some more people. But, you know, it's one of those things where the world of policing is actually just like a different place to organize. It's a different place to sort of research. So when the protests happened, people were trying to figure out like what to do. And, you know, it's hard because I'm in some of these conversations and it's like, I don't think people really know what they're talking about. Like qualified immunity is a great example. There are a lot of people who are like qualified immunities, police accountability. And you're like, qualified immunity should go away for a host of reasons. It's not about police accountability. When we get rid of qualified immunity, no individual officers are going to get in trouble. It's just going to allow you to sue the city. Qualified immunity essentially is a protection from the city being sued. Mm -hmm. No officer individually is going to be held accountable. So all of a sudden, qualified immunity, which very few people understood, you know, a year ago, now everybody's talking about it and they're like talking about it wrong. And you're like, this is a nightmare, you know? So those things are harder. Even no-knocks. We have a campaign right now around no-knock warrants. And a lot of people don't realize that banning no-knock warrants won't really matter. So there are two types of warrants. There's no-knock and then there's a knock and announce, which is like a basic warrant that you see on the news when it's like, or a movie where like, Lola, hey, I have a warrant to come to the house. And you're like, okay, show me the warrant. That's called a knock and announce. The police don't need a no-knock warrant to do a no-knock raid. They can take a straight-up regular search warrant and break into your house. The warrant that they got for Breonna Taylor was a no-knock, but they said they executed it as a knock and announce. And if you saw the video of the Black woman whose house got raided in Chicago and she was naked and they were they were all there, that was actually a knock and announce warrant. That was not a no-knock. The police don't need a no-knock warrant to raid your house. So the work there is actually to limit no-knock warrants, ban them, do whatever. But you want to restrict the execution of all search warrants so they can't turn into something else. And like, that is a little in the weeds for people. But like, if we don't do that, then the rest of it is just window dressing. So I don't want the legislative cycle after the protest to become window dressing, because if there's anything I learned the last go round is that the window does not stay open forever. The police kill 1100 people a year. And like, we don't always get a window to actually make the change. Yeah, and that's why I really love the work that you're doing with your organization, Campaign Zero. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about Campaign Zero and how you're working to lead that reform and really change the system for the better? Yeah, so we think about it as like a three-pronged approach. But before I even say that, they're like a set of guiding principles. The first is that we think we can win in this lifetime. We know that if the structures don't change, the outcomes don't change. And the question is, how do you eat an elephant, right? One bite at a time. Now, there's a version of that that says one bite after another. And we think we'll never win that way because like the elephant will heal. You do one big bite in January, one big bite in July, like we just won't heal. We won't win. We think that it's everybody biting at the same time. So it's like all of these strategies in play at the same time. And I think about the problem as like a really big house, sprawling house across big property. One bulldozer just can't take the house down. It just can't do it. So we need to figure out the pressure points on the property so we can like take one big chunk down, another big chunk, 
and we can do it that way. So when we think about our work, it's three-pronged, reduce the power of the police. We can do that today. As long as there are police, they can have less power. We can shrink the role of the police. You probably know that as like defund. And then we can undo mass incarceration. So like the reason why we care about mass incarceration with regard to policing is that you can't name three ways that you get to prison or jail that don't include a police officer, right? The police are not like a random part of the system. The police are actually a key part of the system. So we want to undo those things. So we focus on structural. We focus on things at scale. We make all our data public. We have the only database of police union contracts, use of force policies. We lead on no knocks. We're about to do something on felony theft. If you steal over $200 in New Jersey, that's considered a felony and you can get a year in prison. Nuts in in New York. New Jersey's the worst. It was set in 1978, hasn't changed. $200 is wild. But the highest in the country is 2,500, which is, that's two cell phones, right? Like, you shouldn't go to prison. You know, like, we can think about accountability without cages. Every state charges you room and board for incarceration or to see you get charged. If you're in jail or prison and you have to go see a doctor, you get billed for that. And you're like, how am I, like, what does that even mean, right? Mm -hmm. So we spend a lot of time on those structural things. Wow, I really love that. I love the fact that you focus on the structural elements and also just really educating as well, because there's so much that I've just learned a lot from you just from this conversation. Uh, And this conversation is very timely because this month is Black History Month, you know, as we honor those that have really fought for our future and the work that's still ahead of us. Um, So our panel today is titled um, Civil Rights 2.0. What does that next phase of civil rights really mean and look like in your words? Yeah, I really think that it's about like, how do we actually just do the thing for once and for all? We think about the people that came before us and no knock to them. We just have so many more tools than they have. So we are learning from their lessons. We are like building on the legacy. And, you know, in the 60s, they didn't have a mechanism to talk to a million people at once. It just wasn't a thing that they had at their disposal. We do now. So the question becomes, can we use those things to finally deliver on the promise Mm-hmm. Or will it be bigger than us, right? Like, I don't, you know, I believe we can win. I think we can win. In some ways, I've never been more confident we can win and more worried that we might not. 2020 worried me in a lot of ways because it was like, you know, I looked up and I saw the protests and da da da, and I saw the news and the magazines. And, the, and then you look at the numbers and the police are like literally unchanged. The police kill more people. Like, nothing happened, right? So the police kill about 1,100 people a year. What is the highest number of convictions that you think has ever happened in a given year? Probably around 10 or so. You're right. It's 11. 11 is the highest ever. Normally, it's like one, two, three. So it's like, imagine if you had a job where you knew it was like impossible to get fired Hmm. and you certainly weren't going to get convicted of a crime. It's like, we could send you to trainings all day long. We put cameras everywhere. Like, But if you knew you weren't going to get in trouble, it wouldn't matter, you know? Now that you put it that way, you know, it's very interesting. And like 2020 woke a lot of people up. And, you know, we've heard a lot about people wanting to get more involved and just, you know, our allies in general, people that really support the movement and really understand what we're fighting for. What do you think is the best way for allies to get involved in a really meaningful way? Yeah, so here's the thing about the police is that there are 18,000 police departments and almost all of the change that'll matter is local. It's your police department, it's the state, like this is like states and cities, you know, that's where the rub is. The federal government manages a couple big police departments, you know them, the FBI, ICE is a federal agency, Border Patrol is one of the biggest agencies in the United States, and then like the DEA ATF. Those are the only federal things that really are levers. The federal government doesn't really have a lot of power over police departments, 
the only mechanism from like a law perspective is that the federal government will pass laws saying that if the departments don't comply, they'll withhold money. But the DOJ has never withheld money from the police department. So Trump was the only president who like even threatened to do it or like tried to do it a little bit, but he did it for a random reason. That just actually hasn't made police departments change their behavior. Almost all the things that really matter will be at the state and local level. So when I think about what allies can do, what anybody can do, it's like you need to fight at the state and local level. The police are killing people all across the country. There's only one major city uh, of the top 100 cities that has killed nobody since 2013, and that's Irvine, California. You know, there's a lot of work to be done. So fighting at the state and local level, what does that really look like? So for someone that's listening to this and says, okay, I'm an ally, I really want to get involved. What does fighting at the state and local level look like for me individually? Yeah, so that's a secret is that outside of like a crisis or like a big media moment, almost nobody is calling their state reps or city council people. It's just not happening. So you need like 30 solid emails, 30 solid calls is a, is like a, that's a huge deal in almost every place in America because it doesn't happen outside of like a national conversation. So if you got like 10 of your friends to email their state rep about one issue, like that is big, you know? And one of the ways that systems work is that systems are designed so that you don't think you have power. That's like the way the game works. Hmm. The more that you realize that like you pressing actually matters, like you calling really matters, you emailing like that actually matters way more than you think. And with policing, a lot of the legislators, they're afraid about the police. They're afraid of the police because the police is so loud. So when you get loud too, it actually helps people be willing to take more risks in sort of engaging these battles about the police because they don't feel like they're out alone. I'll tell you, we're working in a lot of states right now where the police are incredibly organized. They are super loud. They are scaring everybody. And in the places where it works the best, their community members being like, nope, this is what we want. So the legislators are like, cool, I'm responding to my people. And you're like, yes. I love it. So there's more than one way to get the word out, right? And that's one thing that we really love about you is that you leverage different platforms to raise awareness and inspire change. Um, so you're the host of Pod Save the People, which is an award-winning podcast. What inspired you to really start that podcast? Yeah, so it's great. You know, it started in 2016. It feels like forever ago. There were a couple of things. One is that when I asked myself, what does it mean that we experience success? Like, what does success look like? I was like, if this podcast is ever assigned as homework, I won. Like, that's how I know I did it, right? If any students ever have to listen to this for homework, I won. And like, once that happened, I was like, I did it, I did it. But I wanted it to be a podcast where both I learned and listeners could learn. So the first half is all news you don't know. So we, the four of us, we bring a piece of news that like probably didn't become a national story in the past week. And we talk about it. We don't talk about it before we get on the pod. And then we like discuss it. And it's great. Every week I learned so much more than I would have before. And then the cool thing about having a big podcast is that I'm able to bring on people who like might not be on the national stage, but like they have a really cool voice. So today I actually just recorded an interview today with a leading expert on glaucoma because I, I was just like, I read about glaucoma. I was interested in glaucoma. I didn't know that glaucoma disproportionately impacts Black people. And I'm like trying to understand more about glaucoma, right? And like these are the conversations that I don't read about, that I don't see talked about and like I want to know or like you know one of the things we covered on the podcast I didn't know that black people disproportionately get their limbs amputated who knew right so we we talk at the intersection of race and justice and the other cool thing with the pod is that it's led to real change so we had on uh professor Mirsa Bronaran a while ago hopefully she'll be in the Biden administration soon 
But she started talking about postal banking. She was like, did you know that the post offices in the United States used to be banks? And I'm like, I have no clue. There was a U.S. senator who her staff and she heard the podcast. She introduced the postal banking bill. And that is like a legitimate thing in Congress. And now because of that episode, uh, we covered on the podcast once we covered that in New York State, they don't return your ID. So when you get arrested or you get jailed and they take your ID, they don't return it to you when you come out of jail. So you're screwed. Who knows? They just don't return it to you. (laughs) So there's a state senator. His wife heard it on the pod. She came home. She was like, you need to fix this. Their office called me and they introduced a bill to require that they give it back. You know, it's like, so it's cool to have like a space that actually leads to real things. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you did this as well, because I mean, 2020, we've heard all about how it just devastated so many people. But in December, you shared some thankfulness affirmations for 2020. And you spoke about how people built the community during a pandemic. And that was very empowering. Can you talk about how some of the ways that you saw that happen? How do people build community during this time? I mean, we all are Zoomed out, but I've never seen people be more creative on Zoom. I'm like, I've been to baby showers. I have been to alt bingo nights. I'm like, I'm like, okay, bingo, go ahead, bingo. Like, I've just seen people find joy and like figure out how to stay in community with each other in the most sort of wild circumstances. Uh, you know, I think about my sister is like a TikTok chef maker all of a sudden. Like she is like, you know, I learned it. I'm like, Tamir, what are you doing on TikTok? You know, but you see people like learn different things in this moment. And like, that's actually really cool. You see people stay in community. And like I probably said then, it's like, you know, people have told us that when resources become scarce, we'll cannibalize each other. We'll kill each other for resources. Like that's what, and like the opposite happened. When resources right. became scarce, we came together, you know this, you know, think about all the cool things that you've seen happen. And you're like, I didn't even know. And like, that's like, I FaceTimed more in this past year than I, I didn't even know the FaceTime button worked that much. I'm like, whew, I feel like I'm living on FaceTime, but it's cool. And I think they were all ready to get back to the world though. But people have maintained a sense of relationship, which is good. Yeah, I love the way you put that. It's like, we are totally ready to get back to the world, but I really love how people were just able to make the best out of the situation and just really build community. So that's really great. Okay, so I came across one of your posts on uh, Instagram late last year, and you posed the question, I know what you're against, but what are you for? And how do you propose that we get there? Where do you think we should start? And what advice do you have for the audience tuning in today about that? What I've learned in the social justice space over the years is that there is infinitely more work done on the problems than the solutions. So a lot of things are like, we know it's bad. I got it. I don't need another speech. I don't need a march. I don't need a workshop. I don't need a movie. I got it. The question becomes like, what do we do, right? How do we do it? And I think that is messy work. We got to put a stake in the ground. I think people, some people are afraid to put a stake in the ground, but we got to do it. And I just tell myself, I'm in these meetings and I'm like, I know, I know the police are killing you. I get it. I don't need another reminder. I want to figure out like, how, what do we do? Like, what's the thing? And it is like some unlearning for people that like, there are a lot of people who all they see is a no. So we're like, hey, can we do? And they're like, well, this, and you're like, whew. We'll never win if that is like the way you do it, right? Like we actually have to figure it out. So in the police space, uh, you know, I think some people are like, they talk about the fact that it's bad and needs a change. But then when you ask them how, like, what would you do? They got nothing. And I, and like, we got to push people to have something, to put a stake in the ground. And that's what I was saying in that moment. Thank you so much, DeRay, for such an inspiring conversation. I know I'm inspired and I hope everyone tuning in um, really learned something as well and feels inspired. Um, this is such a great way to kick off Black History Month. So thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, this is my pleasure. It's always good to be here. 
That was DeRay McKesson and Lola Banjo from our Bold Force series. For insights into this topic and resources on how businesses can be powerful platforms for change, head over to salesforce.com slash company slash equality. I'm Michael Rebo from Salesforce Studios. Thanks for listening. 